Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to continue the study of Daniel and ask your spirit to lead and guide us as we go through it and help us to see what it is you would want us to see from all of this as we look at the end days in this last part of this chapter. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we left off on, on verse 30, but just a very quick highlight. We were talking about uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, you know, at the end of uh, the last uh, time. Uh, we actually left off with him trying to invade Egypt, and when we see, we're going to see the response to that. And just so you know, from about this point on, about 31, and definitely by 40, we're switching to the end days. Now, 31 to 40, there's some controversy on it. It seems to be still talking about uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, but there's, we can't trace any historical events to much of what is written in between 20, uh, 31 and, and 39. So there's a lot of controversy as to, and I'll kind of, we'll kind of go down both, both lines on how we can look at both ways. But at chapter, at verse thir, uh, 40, we very clearly make the switch away from Antiochus Epiphany to the Antichrist in the end days. So we're going we're gonna to look at this and go, go forward. Um, in chapter 11. In chapter 11, I'm sorry. I didn't. I'm going to read 29, well, let's say 28. Then shall he return into his land with great riches, and his heart shall be against the holy covenant, and he shall do ex exploits and return to his own land. At the time appointed, he shall return and come toward the south, but it shall not be as the former or as the latter. And this is where we talked about him pushing all the way into Egypt, making a false deal and being pushed back. Uh, for the ships of Chittim shall come against him. Therefore, he shall be grieved and return and have indignation against the holy covenant. So shall he do and he shall return. He shall even return and have intelligence with them that forsake the holy covenant. The arms shall stand on his part and he shall and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength and shall take away the daily sacrifice and there you shall place the abomination that makes desolate and so as do wicked against the covenant shall he corrupt by flatteries but the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits and they that understand among the people shall instruct many yet they shall fall fall by the sword and by the flame by captivity and by spoil many days so we're going to look at this. In verse 30, he's, they're talking about the ships of Chittim, which they believe were the Roman navy that came across and delivered the Egyptians from his hand, and that's historical. This is when the, the Romans came in and they helped. The Romans are starting to be a big force, and the uh, Greek empire is starting to fall away. Uh, it really started falling away and was split into four, but we're starting to see now Rome push in and we remember we talked uh, last week about Antiochus Epiphanes was trying to push up through the Balkan states and got repelled and went back and strengthened himself in his own his own cities to try to be able to stand up to the onslaught that he saw was coming here he's going to go down into Egypt and Rome the the Egyptian asked for help from the from the Romans the Romans send a navy in and push him back from the south so now he's taking He's taken a beating from the northwest, and he's taken a beating from the south. And it says that he leaves grieved or uh, disheartened. He is really angry that he's now been pushed back a second time. And so he's going to, as he goes back through Jerusalem, 
And remember, we've talked about this. Jerusalem had the misfortune of being between these two great <laughs> powers. And if they hadn't been, it would have been nice. They could, those two just could have fought each other all day and you know, for the rest of their lives, and nobody would have cared. But each, you know, Jerusalem sat between them on one of the major highways that, that led to Egypt. So they rode by Jerusalem all the time. Usually they kind of left them alone, but every once in a while they harassed them. And here it says, he is angry and he has indignation against the Holy Covenant, which is Israel. We've talked about that last week. And it, and it said that he had intelligence from them that forsake the Holy Covenant. There was always a group of people in Jerusalem, in Israel, that either were not Jews or were Jews that just didn't care about Judaism. They wanted power. There's always a group of people who want power. In every country, no matter how good or how bad the country is, there's a group that wants to take power. And we see this in, in uh, uh, England and France and Germany. And even in our own country, we see these groups that keep wanting to come up and take power away from the current groups and, and reestablish power and reframe everything. Well, there was groups in Jerusalem that the same way. There were foreigners that lived in Jerusalem even back then that would have helped them out. And there is even Jews that wanted to have power given to them by other places. And even in Jesus' day, we saw the Sanhedrin and the high priest were pretty much sold over to Rome. Okay, Rome, you're, you're protecting us. We can keep, you know, you're letting us have our, our church and you're giving us a little bit of power. So we're happy. We'll, we'll be Roman servants. We'll give you your taxes. And you had Peter like, people like... Uh, Matthew, who became Jesus' uh, disciple, who was a tax collector. And that was probably the worst thing you could be, a Jew that was collecting taxes for the Roman government. And so we, we've always seen this tendency in these places, and they had intelligence. He knew how to get in there. And it says that they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength. Antiochus Epiphanes returns from Egypt. He goes in and he attacks Jerusalem. And he plunders Jerusalem. It said that he took out 18,000 talents of silver. Now, a talent of silver is 50 or 60 pounds, if I recall correctly. It's a lot of wealth that he's taking out of Jerusalem. He went in, he plundered the temple. And remember, we talked about this. This was his, his, if he needed money, he was not above going to the temples of any of the gods and stripping out all the wealth of the temple. And in those days, temples were very much like, especially our televangelists. You know, they needed millions of dollars to survive. And these temples were the same thing. They got all kinds of gifts. Most of them were tax-free, just like as, as our churches are. They were tax-free in those days because they were the temple of the God. And there was this consideration that when you went into the temple, you no longer, it was like walking into an embassy. You were no longer in that country. You were in the another country and that was God's country or their God's country whatever whatever it amounted to and we talked about how that used to be true in in Europe when you especially with the Catholic Church you walked into the Catholic Church you left France or or Germany or wherever and you went into God's temple you know God's property and even in the United States in the early days we had that mentality when you walked into the church it was God's church the police could not come into it. You know, the government didn't come into it. There was this mentality that it was basically treated as an embassy. Those days are long gone in almost all the world. 
this day it was the same thing. These places had lots of money. People, people paid for things. They paid for forgivenesses. They paid for prayers. It's good and it's bad. I mean, it's been used in a bad way as well. You know, we're, uh, this whole idea of sanctuary, you've got a lot of churches that are still trying to play the sanctuary game where, you know, you've got people obviously breaking the law. If they come into the church, that they're going to say, you can't, you know, please, you can't come in. And it's a really gray area in our country on whether that's valid or not. Usually the police will not force their way into a church without getting the court orders and everything they need. It's a real gray area because the church is quasi-public. It's not really a public institution, which is why a lot of churches don't do the things that other businesses do because we are basically a private entity that allows people to come in. But here he went in. He went into the temple at Jerusalem and took away the gold, the silver, the utensils, the hooks, everything that they used to sacrifice God. He went into the Holy of Holies and sacrificed a pig after having set up an altar uh, image of, of uh, Zeus, uh, Jupiter in there, or Zeus, or the same person, slaughtered a pig, boiled the pig's flesh, and spread the, spread the water and everything and the blood all over the tabernacle and the temple to desecrate it. And one of the things the Maccabees did after they, kind of after he's going through, they went back, they went through and cleaned out the temple and and re-sanctified it and all of this stuff, but they were missing all the utensils of the temple at this point. So this was a major thing. He went in and this is why a lot of people believe that this is, this was the big, you know, event that ended the 70 years of, of uh, Daniel, but it's at the wrong time frame for, for that to happen. And we talked about the 70 weeks couple, you know, a couple weeks back and we gave you that little handout and everything about it. We see here that Antiochus Epiphanes was, one, was a very clear picture of the Antichrist. Even though he's predating Jesus, he's a clear picture of the Antichrist. And in Revelation, we hear the same, the same type of language, that the temple will be desecrated and it will be uh, made uh, that the sacrifices will not be offered anymore. And so this is why we end up with kind of a dual, from this point on, we're at a dual thing where We've got Antiochus Epiphanes doing a lot of what's on here, but also the forecast of what the Antichrist is going to do. And when we get to chapter 12, it's all about the Antichrist and end times. So he goes in, he takes and pollutes the sanctuary, he takes away the daily, daily sacrifices, and then he makes it an abomination as he, as he makes this sacrifice to, to Jupiter and desecrates the temple. And this was something we've got to understand. We don't really understand this idea of desecrating a temple type deal. Now, if we walked into our church and the sanctuary has been totally messed up, we'd be a little angry, but not the same way that they are. Because we we'd look at it, boy, it's going to cost a lot of money to fix this stuff. But we don't look at our sanctuaries as being a really sanct a sacred place. Now, if you're old enough to remember the 70s and so, and, you know, you were at the tail end of the idea of uh, auditorium or sanctuary being a special and holy place. You did not do anything but worship God in the sanctuary. And you go back beyond that, and there was a really, you know, there were times in churches that were, this is the sanctuary of God. And they built edifices to God that, you know, you walk in and you, you really don't want to do anything else in there because there's just that feel of the way they built it that it's not for any other purpose. Uh, in America, we never really had quite that strict a thing because, in, especially on the West, 
our churches were built as the main meeting place for the for the town. It was the church, but the church opened it up for the, the town meetings once a month, and the school usually met. When you got enough kids in there, the school usually met. And, and, the, and when they first started a school, the pastor is, the only, is usually the, the most educated person in the town because he had a theology degree, would be the teacher for it until they got enough students and enough tax money in the town to hire a teacher. But the school would still meet in the church for a long time because it was the only big building for, for a large group other than the saloon and, no, and nobody wanted to have their kids go to the saloon for school or you, know, you didn't do your, your town meetings in the saloon because that just didn't seem like the right thing to do and, really, and wouldn't be. So in America we've never had, we really haven't had that same sense except for some of the larger ones on the east coast. But if you ever go to visit the, the cathedrals and, and the churches on the, in Europe, those places were built in such a way that you can't imagine anything else happening in that building. It's just the immensity of it. It's, it's got that holy feeling in it. There are still some churches that build a sanctuary and say, we're not using this for anything but worship. They wouldn't hold a concert in there. They wouldn't, they wouldn't do a dinner in it. You know, they wouldn't use that room for anything other than the worship of God. Now, is that a good or bad thing? I don't know. It's nearly not. But what I'm saying is we don't understand this idea of desecrating. Uh, all through the Old Testament, when the kings would become righteous kings and they would destroy these things, they would destroy the temples, they would knock down the altars, and then they would, they would take a, the, the priest that they had killed that worshipped that, that, and they would spread the, you know, burn them on top of the rocks to desecrate that temple so that it would not... that, that altar so it wouldn't be used again because it was a de desecrated uh, area. So we don't really understand this whole mentality. <laughs> there was a lot of violence back there. And we think, we think we have violence today. They had just as much violence there. And some of the violence was done in the name of God because sometimes God told them to. And that was to get rid of the temptation to sin and, and draw back to these things. So uh, sometimes they would just dig up a grave, you know, a grave of somebody that was a wicked person and put their bones on there and crush their bones on it. Oftentimes they would, if they got the priest, they would kill them. But here Antiochus is just desecrating the temple of the Jews. And I read a history that talked about he also was, was making people run naked through, the, through that whole temple complex because, again, to the Jews that was a huge desecration. To the Greek mind, that wasn't too big a deal. But for the Jews who go back into being created in the image of God and having that sense of decency, nakedness was something that was, was not holy, was taboo, was taboo, and you didn't go naked in the public. You, know, you barely went naked in your own house because of the going all the way back to Genesis that Adam and Eve covered their nakedness when they had sinned. But in the Greek mentality, Nakedness was not, a, was not a problem. Matter of fact, in the Olympics in those days, they, they performed their sports without clothes. It was just the way they, that was what was done in their day. It was the depravity of that, of that group that led to the downfall of it. So he's doing everything he can to, to upset Jerusalem <laughs> as he's taking away their stuff. And it says, they that understand among the people shall instruct many Yet they shall fall by the sword and by the flame and captivity and by spoil many days. And this is exactly what happened. The people who tried to keep following God 
were either killed by the sword, sometimes they would flee to, to the caves and he would burn them alive basically in the caves by throwing in a lot of wood and lighting the fire and uh, eventually they'd have to try to get out because of the smoke and they'd end up being burnt and there would be guys outside if they did manage to get past the fire to kill them. So all of this was things that happened in this time frame. And it was cruel and it was violent, but this is a small picture of what it's going to be like during the tribulation period. All right, the tribulation period is going to have all of this stuff, and we talked about that in Revelation. The Antichrist is going to raise, rise to power. The church is going to be removed. And remember, when the church is removed, that's a lot of salt and light that's being removed from this world. Right now, especially in America, it's the church that keeps our government from doing a lot of the things that it wants to do. Now, we're not doing as great a job as we would like to do because it's not a, as, as well, but think of how many things have been blocked by the church standing up and saying, no, this is not right. And we see a lot of things being stopped. If the church was not here, there would be a lot of things going on in this, in this country, in our own country, that would be awful. Once the church taken out and, and Satan can do pretty much what he wants, except what God tells him he can't do, it's going to be a terrible place to live. The violence, the, the sexuality sins, the, all the other things that are going on, that will go on, the theft that will go on because there's no redeeming values out there. And we see the same thing. It's going to get evil. It's going to get hard. And at that time, everything will be focused on Jerusalem. In the, in the, in the tribulation period, everything will be focused on Jerusalem because that's where God will be working with his people. And so we see this, in, and it says that they were lost, they were killed in captivity. The Maccabeans would have fallen under this same thing, even though they're not at this time frame, because they're going to fight the Romans. But this is going to be going on. What Antiochus Epiphanes is starting is going to keep going on for another hundred years. And the Maccabeans are going to rise up. There's going to be many people rising up. And this is why when Jesus came along, we think of him as the Messiah, and we know that he's the Messiah. But when he came along, he was one in a long line of people claiming to be the Messiah. All right? The Maccabeans were claiming to be the Messiah, and other, other groups had claimed to be the, the Messiah, the one that was going to deliver them from their enemies and rise up Israel to its proper place. And this is why I, when we talk about this, and I say, the disciples, when they were following Jesus, believed that he was the Messiah, and their understanding of the Messiah was, Rome is out of here and the king is going to set up his kingdom and we're, on, we're, we're his right-hand men, so we're going to be the, the dukes and the princes and the barons and we're going to be the, the chief rulers in, the, in his new kingdom. So every time he talked about dying on the cross and paying for sins, because it didn't commute, uh, compute to them, you know, basically all they heard during those times was blah, 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 blah. <laughs> you know, this doesn't, you know, Okay, the, the Messiah is saying he's going to be leaving and dying for sin. We don't understand this, so we're just going to tune it out. And because from this point in time, from Antiochus until about Jesus' day, there were many groups that kept rising up and saying, we're, we're the Messiah. We're going to deliver this. We're going to put Israel in its rightful place. And so it's the start of everything and will be the completion in the tribulation period when the Antichrist rises up and says he's the end, that he is Christ and the Messiah. What time frame are we looking at again here? At this point, we are looking at approximately 530, 500 BC, 
or, or 600 to 530 BC, uh, give or take a few, depending on where we're at. Uh, we, we are at right at the complete fall of the Greek Empire. Okay, so right now we're at the end of the Greek Empire with the Roman Empire getting ready to take over. So we're right there at that, that spot. Okay, verse uh, 34. Now when they shall fall, they shall be helped with a little help, but many shall cleave to them with flatteries, and some of them of understanding shall fall and try them and to purge them and to make them white, even to the time of the end, because it is yet to be appointed and the king shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself over every god, and shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the king indignation is accomplished, and that it be determined shall be done. So we're going to stop there. When Antiochus went into Jerusalem, 80,000 people were killed in Jerusalem. All right? 40,000 were taken as prisoners. Another 40,000 were sold into slavery. Just about wiped out the city in one, in one fell, fell move by sending, taking prisoners with him, you know, sending a number off to be slaves and killing the largest population. And so he really took this steps to really destroy Israel. And this is one of the things that Satan has kept trying to do against Israel. A lot of people wonder why the Jews have been so attacked. Well, it's very obvious. If Satan could destroy the Jews before Jesus was born, then the line, then God would have been able, not able to have his son be born from the line that he had chosen. Okay? He said that all people will be blessed because of the Jews, and that is because Jesus was born through the line of the Jews. So Satan has all these times tried to destroy the Jews, tried to destroy them, uh, before they hardly get started by different attacks on Abraham, when they went into, into captivity in, in uh, Egypt, they were tried to be destroyed, the male line, so that there wouldn't be a pure line for them. He's tried to destroy them through the Babylonian captivity, the Assyrian captivities, uh, this time against Antiochus, who's going to try to destroy the, the, the royal lines out of them. We see this over and over and over. Why? Because if Satan could destroy the Jews, Jesus could not have been born and been able to be the Messiah and Savior for the world. Even when he was born, Herod, through, through the line, uh, working of Jesus, was trying to kill all the babies of that day so that he could destroy the Messiah. God rescued him, all, and we know that story, sent him to Egypt. But all then, all through history, we have the same purpose of Satan trying to destroy the Jews. Because if he can get rid of the Jews, then there will not be a Jewish nation to be at the end days. And he, he could try to get rid of them and say, see, God, you're, you're not going to be able to finish your, your prophecies. You said that your, your people would return. That didn't work. Hitler tried to destroy them. Many people have tried to destroy them through history. Uh, we see the Ottoman Empire tried to destroy them during their, during their reign of terror. We see all these groups trying to destroy the Jews. And Satan in the end days is, again, going to try to kill off the Jews in that last seven years. Because, again, if he can kill off all the Jews, then Jesus does not have a place to come back to and have a people to reign. And that's why in Revelation it tells us that the people will flee Jerusalem into the hills and the, and the countryside and God will protect them. 
because God's going to keep his remnant and say, here's my people that I'm coming back to rule. Satan, you are not going to be victorious, even though Satan has tried over and over and over again to destroy the Jews. And it's never going to be accomplished. So we, we look at this because in Mark 13 and 14, it says they're going to, return, they're going to flee to the, the mountains. Luke 21 and 20, uh, 21, 21 tells us they're going to flee for the mountains. So we see this over and over again, how God, Jesus himself said, when that day comes, flee. Don't go down and get your coat. Don't, you know, pray that it's not in the middle of winter so it's not hard travel. Uh, pray that you're not pregnant and you can't travel. Pray that it's not on the Sabbath because you'll be breaking the Sabbath to get out of here. Uh, so all these things that Jesus kept telling them, the end time is coming and it's going to be harsh on the Jews. And I think we're going to get a taste of it as Christians before the end. We're going to have a hard time for Christianity that true Christians before the end time comes. See, that's what's amazing about all the Bible, how they thought it was going to be the end. That was We have so much that has occurred, though, that we can look at it and say, Jesus said, look at the signs, and we can look at the signs and say, you know, and you're right, it's been said, and this has been everybody's thing, it's been said since the apostles, the apostles believed Jesus was going to return in their day, and it is true, but there's a lot of things that didn't happen in that time that needed to happen. But now the Jewish nation is back together, uh, we see this whole idea of a one-world government that has never truly existed. I mean, we've had what's been called one-world governments. You know, uh, probably the most recent one that did it, tried to do it, was uh, England with all their colonizations across the world. But even they did not have the whole world. But the sad thing now, and I've said this over and over, if you watch any news broadcast and it talks about like illegal aliens. Their, their very first comment is, well, they shouldn't be illegal. There shouldn't be any reason why they can't cross a border. And this is being said more and more. If you start listening to these people talk on the, the schools and the universities have been teaching since at least the 80s, if not the 70s, that the borders are what's wrong. Patriotism is what's wrong. Having different countries is what's wrong with this world. If we could just get rid of the countries, we would have no problems. The sad thing about this is, number one, it, it won't work. Number two, the really sad thing is, you think about the people leading our country right now are the ones who went through school in the 80s. They were taught in the university level that all this stuff was, is the reason for all the bad things. So even in the United States, our president talks all about how our, there's nothing real special about being American. We're no better than anybody else. And basically he's saying, without saying it, that there shouldn't be a borders. We should just all be, we should just all be happy in one big, big family and big country. This is where we are in our time. And this is one of the reasons we are so close to the end time because life of human, humanity is no longer precious, which is exactly what Satan is pushing for. And I've, I've shared this many times. His whole goal is to kill as many humans as he can, not because he's trying to build a kingdom for eternity, but the more humans he can deprive God of, the more he's hurting God by taking away God's precious yeah, humanity. Josephus tells us that Antiochus ruled, in, uh, ruled over Jerusalem for three years, desecrating it, making it a mess. And... Uh, 
or three and a half years what did, between these things. So Antiochus is definitely a picture of the Antichrist who's going to rule over Jerusalem. There's three ways they tell us about the three and a half years. One is the number of days. The other one is a time times and a half a time, which is three and a half years is what they tell us. And sometimes they just tell us it's three and a half years. <laughs> we see this language, three and a half years is a very prominent number. And this is why we get into this whole thing of Antiochus did this. He's in a picture of the Antichrist. And we also know the Antichrist is going to do this. Because if you remember in, in Revelation, Dan, uh, John tells us the same thing. He gives, it, gives us the years and the three and a half years in, the, in, the, in those days. It is one of those things that God has, has said, and he's going to rule. They're going to cleanse the temple after he leaves. And the same thing when Jesus comes back at the end of the three and a half years of desecration, he's going to come back. He's going to cleanse the temple and he's going to rule for Jeru from Jerusalem for the thousand years. And then Satan will be released one last time for temptation after a thousand years of peace and kindness. And basically that's to show that man has this idea that in a perfect environment, if you're raised perfect, you won't sin. Well, we just talked about that Sunday. In a perfect environment, Adam and Eve sinned. In the perfect environment, after a thousand year reign of Christ, people are going to want to sin and they're going to rebel against him and, and be defeated one la for the last time. So we see this over and over that God is giving people the chance to show that he's so merciful. I've given you the perfect environment and you're still going to sin. You know, I've challenged you with the, with, the, with the opportunities for sin and challenged you that I love you enough and will forgive you your sins and people will reject him. So over and over we're going to see this process happen. And uh, so we, we see this... Uh, Bringing, being brought up and some of them of understanding shall fail and try to purge them and shall make them white even to the time of the end and this is if we're looking at the on an antichrist timeline this is believed that it's talking about the Maccabees the Maccabees the Maccabean priests were almost as brutal on their own people as they were on the Romans because they were saying you are sinning and they were abusive to their people to, dri to try to drive them back to worshiping God. And there were probably people who got punished during the, the Antiochus. This is why we say it, very, it gets pretty hard here on whether this is talking about end times or during, during because we don't really have any historical references of the people standing up against Antiochus and fighting. Most of them ran for Petra. <laughs> and tried to get out of the city rather than fight him. There probably were groups, so this is why we can't say it isn't Antiochus, but we don't have any hard historical records. And this is why there's a lot of controversy on whether this is in days prophecy or the uh, his historical, which when it was written is prophecy. <laughs> and remember, this is, this is all written before it's happened. Okay, we wanna keep that in mind which is, again, why we talked about last week. People have problems with this, is how accurate it described what happened. So people go, well, it had to have been written after the fact. Well, God knew what was going to happen. He has no problem telling the story before it, before it happened. And then in verse 36, the king shall do according to his will and shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak marvelous things against the god of God and shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished for that which is determined shall be done. This is another one of these verses we don't, because we don't have any statement that Antiochus Epiphanes 
stood up and declared he was God. Remember, when he desecrated the temple, he put Jupiter in there and, and made the offering to him. Again, he may have come and done this. We don't know. But there's no strong saying that, that Antiochus did this. But we do know in Revelation that the Antichrist is going to stand up and declare himself in the middle of the tribulation period that he is God, that he is the Messiah, he is to be worshipped. And that is when the eyes of the Jews will be opened and they will flee Jerusalem. Okay? I, I keep forgetting this is all before this happened. This is all prophecy. All happened. This is the most detailed, specific prophecy in all of the Bible. And is this Daniel chapter 11. And people look at it and say it just could not have been written because of how clear it talks about this. And remember last week we talked about Bernice. We talked about Cleopatra, uh, Cleopatra of Syria, not the Cleopatra IV who, who is going to come around later as Queen of the Nile. So we, we see all of this. And this is why we get to this little section. It becomes a little more vague as far as it goes. But it says he's going to do what he wants. I tend to believe that we're talking about the Antichrist from, from about 31 on. And definitely from 40 on, we talk about the Antichrist. So he declares, going to declare himself God until the end is determined. Because at the end of that time, he's, Jesus is going to appear and, and fight the battle that takes over Jerusalem, which is not much of a battle. He just speaks and they die. You know, not, not a very hard battle at all. We, we ride behind him on white horses. And then he's going to rule for that thousand years. And then it says... Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall magnify himself above all. And this is one of the reasons that many people will believe that the Antichrist will have a be, probably be a homosexual because he says that he, shall not, he not, will not regard the desires of women. So, and there's the other side that just say that he's so apostate that, you know, he's not going to, when women cry or, or beg, he's, he's not going to pay attention to him. So either way, I'm not going to, we're not going to make a strong stance on this. People have looked at it both ways, and I'm not going to say one way or the other because I tend to believe it's more that he's not going to be concerned with their cries or for pity or mercy. Definitely got a big ego. But in his estate shall the honor of God God of forces and a God whom his fathers knew not shall he honor with gold and silver and with precious stones and ple pleasant things. This verse does give us something that Antiochus did. He did take honor for, for a God that's not of his fathers, Jupiter. He did worship him. We also see this with, in Revelation. The Antichrist is going to create an image called the beast and he's going to give life to the beast and there's going to be people are to worship the beast. So we see this again either direction and we're not going to take a hard stand because one thing remember we've talked about this so many verses in the bible have a dual fulfillment a partial fulfillment in the lifetime of the prophet who's who's speaking it so they can say yes see it came true and a future proclamation and remember we talked about and the virgin shall give birth to a child and isaiah said that the king's, in the king's house, a young woman who just recently got married gave birth to a child. And then we very clearly have the angels telling us that this is a fulfillment, that the virgin has given birth. Okay, so we see this dual fulfillment in many of the prophecies. So we, 
this is, I have no problem with this at various places looking at Antiochus and very, at other places talking about the Antichrist, the Antichrist, not just the type. And, and thus shall he do to the most strongholds of the strange God whom he shall acknowledge and increase with glory and shall cause them to rule over many and shall divide the land for gain. He sold the land because he needed money. Okay, and it really wasn't his to give away, but he claimed it as victor and said, I'm going to sell this land. And that's not uncommon in, in most kingdom changes. When you have a changeover of power of government, the government will sell the, resell the land to anybody they want to to raise money. doesn't matter who it belonged to in the past because on a new government, the government owns it. And we could probably picture this happening in the last days when the, when the new world starts over and a new government starts over, selling it before the profit to the, the highest bidders and, or, or territories or government, government uh, blocks. And we can see this happening with no problem. And it fits into all that's going on with all these pushings for the idea of a, um, either a communist or a socialist regime where, where the wealth is supposed to be spread out amongst all the people. There were, it never works. There are always people who are richer than others, and there's always somebody who's going to be ruler over others because without rulers, it's chaos. You have anarchy without it. And even in a socialist capitalist system, you have people that are better than others and have the power. And when they have power like that, they take advantage of people worse than any of the democracies or republics out there because they can't be replaced at all. All right, verse 40. This is where we very clearly switch to the end times because uh, there's no real picture of any Antiochus doing any of this stuff. At the end of the time, at the, ti at, at the time of the end, shall the king of the south push at him and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots and with horsemen and with many ships and he shall enter into the countries and shall overflow and pass over and he shall enter also into, his, into the glorious land and even countries shall be overthrown but though these shall escape out of his hand even Edom and Moab and the chief of the children of the Ammon. So here we have an invasion in the end. And if we re look at Revelation, the time of the Antichrist is not as easy going as, <laughs> as we've always thought it would be. He has to put people under authority for himself, and he does a lot of it by force. And this, we believe, is a picture of the time where the countries are working after Rome has fallen. Because it, there are many who believe that the horsemen and chariots that are flying around are basically the Muslim Empire being built up into the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire was known for its horsemanship. They rode in quick, conquered a town. Basically, when Muhammad and his followers later on, they would ride into town, kill the leaders, tell everybody, convert or die. And they'd either leave an empty town or they'd leave a town that was quote unquote converted. And they'd ride for the next town. And we've, we've shared, talked about this, you know, the, the Balkan countries, the, the little place just above Turkey to, into Europe, those countries went back and forth between being, uh, being Catholic and being Muslim so many times over the, over, the, over the centuries that basically they just looked at whoever rode into town, decided they were going to switch and, follow, and had this very strange mix 
of Catholicism and, and Muslim religion, they were really neither. They were kind of a mix of both. And just whoever had ridden through town, that's who they said they were worshiping at the time, just so they didn't, didn't die. And another 20 or 30 years later, the, the, you know, first the Ottoman Empire would push in, then the Catholics would push back. And about 30 years later, the Ottoman Empire would sweep back over them. And 30, 40 years later, the, the Catholics would sweep back over them. And the Catholics had the same mentality, convert or die. And it was how they raised their, raised their population as well. And so we see this almost picture of that kind of battle going on. Jerusalem was conquered by the Ottoman Empire and held that way for centuries under Muslim rule under the Ottoman Empire. And if you don't know who the Ottoman Empire, they were a strong Muslim empire that reigned all the way through World War I. And it was falling apart by World War II, pretty much. It had been kind of disbanded and fallen apart. But it was a very strong empire. And it was, really goes back into the days of Muhammad. And they, would, they were very simple. They rode in with their horses, they convert or die, and then left to the next, next town. And it says, you'll enter the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown. But in those that escape will be Edom, Moab, and Ammon. Those are basically the Middle Eastern countries. And they escaped mostly because they just became Muslim, part of the Muslim world. They, you know, they, they just became Muslim and they escaped and they kind of set their own little thing up and have not had any problems over the years. And he shall stretch forth his hand also upon the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. But he shall have power over the treasuries of gold and silver over all the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall be at his steps. Again, this never happened under Antiochus. And having this much control has really not ever happened in our history that we're really aware of. Hitler took a lot of, lot of gold and silver out of this area, but he didn't get to hold it long. It's very, it seems to be a very clear picture of the Antichrist, and he's going to have control over the silver and gold. He's going to make it so that you can't buy or sell without his mark. So basically, he'll make money worthless. And you know, it's kind of funny as I listen to all these people talking about how the dollar, U.S. dollar and all the other dollar, you know, currencies are going to fail, so buy gold and silver. Which, in normal circumstances and historical circumstances, that is great advice. But if we are actually entering into the end days, you can have all the gold or silver you want, and it's not going to do you a bit of good because you can't buy anything without the mark of the beast. So... You know, I would say, yes, it's probably a good idea to have some, but if it is the end days, it's not going to do you a bit of good. And we need to be careful. We need to be careful that we don't put our trust in the things of this world. You know, uh, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 have been really on my mind lately. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not into your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Too many times we make decisions based on what we think is good, what we think is is, is uh, something we should be doing. And we've all been there when we've done that and we find out it wasn't what God wanted us to do. More and more I'm learning that I need to be putting God in the center of my decisions. You know, God, what is it you want me to do? Not what looks good, because I've made myself have such terrible times by doing what I think is good. I've had a lot of problems in my life doing things that really looked good. Uh, you make your pro-con list, there was 100 pro, pros for it and, and three or four cons, and you go, this is obviously the right answer, and find out that it was the most miserable thing I could have done spiritually. And we need to really begin to understand, 
everything we do is spiritual. All right? Everything we do, especially as Christians, is spiritual. But even everything the world does is spiritual even though they don't recognize it. All right? When we have these groups that have come in and trying to destroy the Jews, they've been motivated by Satan. And I'm not saying they heard his voice or anything, but he motivated them and set circumstances up for them to do that. And they were doing his work, doing what they thought was right, but it was a spiritual thing that was going on. The more we realize that everything is spiritual, the more we're going to spend time praying about what we're going to do. The more we're going to put God in the center of all of our areas. The more we're going to say, God, is this what you want me to do? God, what is your call for my life? And this is something that's very important for us to understand. Uh, I've had many people over the years, and I don't know where I first learned the idea of, of this, but the statement I heard in my life is, just because there's a need in the church does not mean that you are called to fill it. This is the greatest advice we can ever have. And many times when somebody says, well, I think I should be doing whatever it is in the church, I'll ask them, why? And if they give me any version of, well, I just, there, it needs to be done, I'll tell them to go back and pray. Because a need is not a reason to be doing something. There's always going to be needs. And the worst thing about filling a need when you're not called is the person who is called may come along and the job is filled and they're going to be confused because they knew that God wanted them to do something and it's not there. Because somebody who shouldn't be doing it is doing it. But be able to honestly say, this is what God wants me to do. Because there's a lot of us that can fill in and do anything. You know, there's a lot of us that can do jobs, but if, is God really asking us to do it? One of the things I have noted, when I'm doing what God wants me to do, it may be hard at times, it may be tedious at times, but, I, but for the most part, I enjoy doing it. You know, it's not mean I'm going to always enjoy that there's not bad times, but for the most part, when I'm doing what God wants me to do, it's very enjoyable. It may be hard, it may be tedious, but there's a joy in doing it. And here, that the, he will own everything. Verse 30, uh, 44, But the tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him. Therefore he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly make, oh, make away many. And he shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas of the glorious mountain, and he shall come to his end, and none shall help him. So again, this is that idea of the Antichrist coming up, Basically hearing that Jesus is on his way, gathering his armies and being defeated. So we see the Antichrist in this end sections very clearly because there's nothing about Antiochus doing any of this material in history. Hidden myths, 31 through 39, but nothing in the last few verses. But again, this is all prophecy. And remember, it's prophecy when he's giving it. He's giving these prophecies while... Assyria, Assyria is still in charge. Uh, the Medo-Persian Empire, excuse me, the Medo-Persian Empire is still in charge. Greece hasn't even started being a power when he's giving this, uh, given these prophecies. Most of, much of the book of Daniel was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, so it kind of tells us that this was written before the Greek Empire. And it was written into the Septuagint, though there's some question on it. <laughs> There's some, of the, some that say the original Septuagint did not have Daniel. Some say that Daniel's always been in the Septuagint and 
should be a historical fact, and I can't get any straight answer from, the, from my research. So let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this. We thank you for the fact that you've shown us history to, to you is not history. You know it from the beginning to the end, and that you were able to show all of what's coming. And Lord, that we know what is coming through various books, and we just thank you for your care and your love and your teaching. In your son's name, amen.